Resident Advisors Exchange. My name is Chloe Lula. I'm the Exchange's senior producer. Today on the Exchange is a panel that was recorded live at Wire Festival at Knockdown Center in New York, and it deals with a thorny issue at the heart of many people's artistic careers, the U.S. visa application process. It's moderated by Wire Festival's co-director, Tyler Miles, who's joined by Taya Abashidza, a co-founder of Wire Festival and the club Basement, as well as David Amar, the co-founder of the international artist assistance agency called Fanfare, and Joe Sigmund, a partner and senior agent at Surefire, the American booking agency. The four guests talk about the application process's prohibitive costs and how it inherently keeps many artists from pursuing a visa. They also talk about the bureaucratic obstacles and overall impact on the electronic music ecosystem. When visas are difficult to acquire, it means that lineups become more homogenized and our culture as a whole misses out on the talent circulating overseas. What are the solutions? How do other countries like Canada deal with artist visas? And what happens when the US government raises visa application fees further, as was proposed in a recent push for tightening legislative change? The visa process can cost anywhere from three to 6,000 US dollars to complete, and it must be repeated every few years. As the panelists reflect, there is no liability, reciprocity, or insurance inherent to the process, and the U.S. government expects a certain kind of exceptionalism that is idiosyncratic and somewhat difficult to meet. While it's difficult to keep governing bodies accountable, there are things we can do to take action. There are policies that DJs and the people around nightlife can fight to reinterpret, and there are lesser known visas, like the P2, that is less expensive for emerging artists to acquire. The panelists also reflect how musicians' unions and nonprofit organizations can engineer better and more equitable, sustainable ways forward for our scene. This is an urgent conversation that reflects real issues affecting every tier of artists from nightlife and beyond. So please listen through the end. RA will be looking at this in more detail in 2024. So we hope that this is just the beginning of a conversation that will evolve over time. Thanks so much for tuning in. Without further ado, here are our wonderful panelists live from WIRE. My name is Tyler Myers. I'm the executive director of Knockdown Center. Thank you guys for coming. Um, okay, so the complex visa process. When we talk about WIRE, we always really want to do a, a, a panel program that if WIRE is trying to address a, a community and a time, then we can't really do that with also, without also having a discussion about topics that are important to that community and this time. Something that in particular for us here works on quite a bit are visas and the logistics around the bookings that we make. Um, and so it seemed like this topic that we hope to address tonight, it felt important to make time to have this discussion. So I'm going to introduce the other panelists. So nearest to me is David Amar. 
he co-founded and serves as the general counsel for Fanfare Project, um, which is an artist service agency that serves as a legal representation for artist visa applications. He attended Victoria University in Toronto and then Brooklyn Law School, spent time at the Volunteer Lawyers for the Arts, Covey Law, and also uh, the Bushwick Food Co-op as their legal chair. Taya is the co-founder and booker of Basement, as well as the co-founder and booker of Wire Festival. She joined Knockdown Center in 2018, following a successful four-year run as a freelance promoter and booker in New York. Then working closely with Giga Jafaredze, um, her curatorial savvy and comprehensive knowledge of modern electronic music have helped make Basement one of New York's most respected nightclubs. A lifelong devotee of music, she studied piano at Experimental Music School at the Tbilisi State Conservatory. Prior to emigrating to the U.S., she devoted herself to both politics and music, working at the Central Election Commission of Georgia for over six years, while also working at locally organized music festivals on a massive scale. Uh, Joe Sigmund, uh, over on the left, is a partner and senior agent at Surefire Agency. He is a, an adamant advocate for the arts and is supportive of marginalized people everywhere. So the conversation uh, that I'm going to try to moderate should happen in three sections. We'll sort of try to talk about what the problem is from the perspective of the panelists, what the effect of that problem is on our community or electronic music in particular, um, and then potentially things that we might think about that we can uh, propose as solutions for that problem. Um, so to begin, we'll go to the lawyer who's going to sort of help us just clarify exactly what the visa is, why it exists, and that sort of thing. So the first question, David, why is there an artist visa process? That is a good question. Um, so in the 1990s, the government, specifically Immigration Service, they revamped their whole system um, to create this, uh, this visa, work visa process that covers everything from every type of employment visa, you know, bankers, executives, musicians, managers, uh, every industry. So we've had this visa framework in place for 30 odd years now. There are two different types of visas that generally apply to performing artists um, that want to work in the US. And 99.9% .9 of the time, in order to perform, to play a show, to make money, or to play a show without making money in the US, you need to apply for one of these two types of work visa. The O1 is the most common for a solo artist, most electronic musicians. There are also P visas for groups. And it's an arduous process that has been getting more and more difficult over the last 30 years with bureaucratic creep. As part of these visa applications, as far as a bird's eye view goes, you need to do two things as the, as the sponsor or the petitioner or the employer who wants to bring over an artist to work. You need to prove to the government that there's legitimate work to take place in the US, that there's legitimate work that's going to cover the entire length of the visa that you're asking for, which can be up to three years, no more. And you have to prove that the artist or the visa applicant in general is eligible for that visa classification. And in order to do that, you must send the government proof of their distinguished reputation, proof of their press coverage, where have they performed, they, are they notable in their career, have they made lots of money compared to other people in their occupation. So you go through this massive framework and checking boxes and presenting 
evidence in paper copy to the government. They send it in, hopefully they approve it quickly. This is a whole other story of um, how far in advance you have to do this, how long does it take. But it's a long, it's a long process and um, we're stuck with it for the time being because it was uh, created through that act of Congress in the 90s and through interpretation and through all the visa applications, you know, the millions and millions that have been filed in the last 30 years, it's only gotten marginally and marginally and marginally more difficult in that time. So legitimate seems like a word that they use in their criteria. Legitimate work, legitimate talent, is that what it was? Yeah, what the, the, the words that they use are things like distinguished reputation, notable achievement, commercial success, uh, critical acclaim, and what's insane about the process, or one of the things that's insane about the process, is that in the legal framework and in what types of evidence can you submit to the government in order to prove this, where they, de they define something like commercial success as, and this is in the regulations, uh, how many box, box office receipts, video cassette sales, compact discs, you know, they've, they haven't updated this since 1994. So when I tried to, you know, send in paperwork that shows an artist has, you know, 25 million Spotify streams, it is possible, and it's happened to me before, where the government pushes back and they say, we don't accept this, if you need to submit, as it says in our regulation, box office receipts, video cassette sales, compact discs, tapes. It's this language of legitimacy, and it's this language that is stuck in a different era of legitimacy. And then the purpose of the visa is to provide legal status that mm -hmm. isn't a tourist status exactly. in order for somebody to enter the country and know what they're permitted to do while they're here. Yeah, and precisely. That's, that's the, the nuts and bolts of it. Yeah, they get the visa, you file the petition, after the petition gets approved, the artist takes that piece of paper that, you know, you've been approved for a visa, they take it to their local U.S. Embassy, they do a short interview, finally they get to the border, they show that visa and their passport is stamped with that work visa status. You know, one of the things that that allows an artist to do is apply for a social security number in the U.S., avoid tax withholding, and be able to be paid completely above board for the duration of that visa. How much does the application cost? That is a good question. So in terms of government fees, right now it's about $500 in government fees. The Musicians Union charges a fee of about $300 at the moment. You have to go to the Musicians Union and, and ask them if it's okay to bring over a foreign worker. They say yes every time, which is great, but they pay to say, you know, it's $300 for them to write the yes letter. So those are the hard costs, and then most people hire either a visa agent, a specialist, or a law firm to write the visa application because a promoter doesn't want to waste their time and try and figure out how to do this from scratch. They can do it, everybody. they'd rather have somebody who's experienced doing it. So the costs for that application for the legal fee or the agent fee range from about $1,500 on the low end up to $10,000. The government can charge expediting fees if you want the visas quickly. So the minimum amount of money um, would be about $2,2200 going all the way up to, you know, I've, I've seen applications that go into the expedited last minute at very expensive law firms that can go up to $20,000. So $800 plus that, two, so $3,000 as a, as a bottom yeah, up to twenty yeah, depending on the contract. Twenty-five to three thousand as as a very very low end. And then the steps are submission, and then so the timeline. 
Yeah. Uh, submission. Are there other steps after submissions uh, if they're gonna if they're leaning towards approving it? And how long does all of that take? Yeah. So you would think that they give with all this money. You would think that the government has a, a schedule and a guaranteed processing time. They do not. Um, it completely varies. If you pay for their regular processing, which is that roughly $500 fee, at the moment, what I tell my artists and what I tell my clients is we should budget a month or two to work on everything together, make sure the package is in order, submit it to the government. Right now, that regular processing is taking about six to eight weeks. You can pay to have it expedited if you cough up an extra $2,500. So that brings the government cost up to 3K on its own. If you pay that extra money, they will guarantee that they'll review it in 15 days. But you know, on their review, it's not necessarily an approval straight away. They could look at the petition. They could say, well, we think this is deficient in some way or another. And that really comes back to what I mentioned earlier is these two main things that we're trying to prove. They, the government will either say, we're not sure that your upcoming work is legitimate. We don't think that you actually have a gig coming up. We think that you're you know, just trying to get this visa to like disappear and into the U.S. and work as a bartender or whatever. They don't think you're a real artist. Or they'll come back and say um, something about your statistics or your press is not, doesn't rise to the level that we believe an artist of extraordinary ability, an O1-level artist, uh, should have achieved. So they can say things like, we, you submitted press from Resident Advisor. Show us why Resident Advisor is an important music for the electronic music community. You submitted you know, Spotify statistics. Tell us why these Spotify statistics should be analogous to um, CD sales. Um, so all sorts of stuff. Um, and that really delays the process. And would they, so if Taya says, I want to book this artist's basement, we do the application, does the government ever disagree with her? Not yet. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, but do they sometimes disagree with a, with a domestic promoter who, has, who legitimately wants to book an artist? And yeah. the government may say, we don't think that artist is good enough? Absolutely. It happens, I mean, personally, and this, I, I try to, for my roster and for my artists, you know, I represent right now about 180 artists from 50 plus countries. And we try to take on artists that we think are going to be eligible. You know, they might be borderline. They might be, you know, some are more famous than others. Some artists have Grammys and some artists have just headlined at, you know, places like basements, super notable, super notable clubs or, you know, Bastiani and things like that. But uh, yeah, there's always a risk that the government will push back. Denials are rare as far as I see them, but they are absolutely, absolutely a risk. And so, Joe, when you're looking for talent, in my view, I'm interested in this question about emerging talent. So you're, you had told me that about 75% of your roster is holding a foreign passport. Yep. So if you're looking for talent, is this, an, is this on your mind? Absolutely, it's on my mind. I mean, it's not necessarily going to be a deterrent to the artists that I want to sign because of the highly competent partners that we have, like David, Taya, but it presents a roadblock, which is significant. Surefire, we describe ourselves as a discovery agency. We're not waiting for the artist to be able to move a thousand tickets before we bring them over here. We want to be involved from the ground floor. And it's important to us that different regions across the world are developed simultaneously for the artist. That can have really bad knock-on effects to their career development overall, which can stretch for decades in some cases, right? 
So the, the paywall, the, the prohibitive backstopping that the government is doing with these visas, it, it has long-term effects. At that level, it's essentially, I don't know, perpetrating a further very American, uh, you know, uh, exceptionalism for people who have the money to do so. And so financially, if you want to sign an artist, how, how do you guys deal with what could be three, four, five thousand dollar three-year visa process every three years? Uh, Particularly for emerging, emerging artists who maybe aren't demanding huge fees, particularly in the first couple of years of that period. Well, I mean, not only would they not necessarily or, you know, all the time command huge fees on their debut tours, right? And yeah. we advocate <laughs> to never come over without the proper documentation beforehand, right? Especially these days, not the Wild West anymore. 95% of these artists that we're looking at, they don't have the money to front. And we also don't like to use deposits for the shows on the first tour to pay these as much as we can. And in certain occasions we do with partners who understand we're at, like, say, a Ben Gaga basement here, right? Uh, we have documentation that goes along with that, but that's kind of putting the cart before the horse, and it, it puts a certain extra level of liability into the process, which means then promoters are out deposit money if the visa gets denied, if there's a PIMS error, if the show has to move for COVID or whatever else. You know, we had a bunch of those, actually, mm -hmm. right? And now it's money flying all over the place, money being lost in the process, and none of this to the benefit of what we're actually trying to do here, right? So a lot of times the agency will come in and advance the cost of this, a lot of times management will come in if the manager is in place or a label is in place. I mean, there's not a lot of label support for artists at this level, right? But, you know, someone who's playing for 500 to to $1,000 a show in the UK or pounds, whatever, in the UK, they don't have three grand sitting around, you know? We have to scrounge money together, put agency resources to bear, or ask other partners to do so. And that also makes the artist beholden financially, mm -hmm. which is... What, they need to incur debt now in order to ply their trade in one of the biggest markets in the world? That's not fair either, is it? And are they aware, of, like in the initial discussions with an emerging artist, are they aware of this issue before? That's usually the first or second question that we're asked, right, as, as you guys both know. Luckily, it's a question that we always answer in the affirmative. I've not had a visa denied because we rely on, on, on strong, knowledgeable partners. But it's extremely daunting. And it's the horror stories that get mm -hmm. spread the most. Right? So we answer in the affirmative. We, we believe very much in our process. We haven't had issues with this before, but I'm sure there are very many cases that haven't been brought to my attention from artists who have decided outright before even being approached by us or vice versa to just not pursue touring in the Americas this period because of the cost, because of the horror stories, because of the protocols and processes, right? So it's daunting enough that it's even denying people from considering this as a viable option again, having knock-on effects to their career development overall. I'm trying to think yeah. of an alternative instance of this, and I'm coming up short. Yeah. You're, like, you're blocking cultural exchange. The fear is what blocks the exchange of ideas and performances and spreading diverse talent between the U.S. and all these other markets. This is something we were talking about a little bit earlier. You know, I, I get put in the position you know, at least once a month where an artist will approach me, usually an artist who doesn't have agency backing or label backing or partners, somebody who just says, like, you know, I know a promoter in the U.S., I've been offered a gig, smaller time artist, and I get put in the position of having to tell them, you know, I don't think you should apply for this visa. I think it's a huge risk. You know, I think that you're, you're not far along enough in your career as far as the government would say. I don't know how approvable your, your case is, and I think it's a bad idea. And 
you know, occasionally I get talked into doing it, occasionally I get pushed over, but in those instances, the petitions get unbelievably difficult. I end up, you know, they become huge money losing cases for me. I spend dozens and dozens of hours on these shaky applications. Um, they're stressful for the artist, you know, and nobody, nobody wins. You know, it's the lawyer or the visa agent or whoever is spearheading the application shouldn't have to be put in this position where they are the gatekeeper of the talent. You know, the talent should be the gatekeeper, if anybody, should be the promoter or the agent or whoever has the, the fans, interest yeah. in the other, the fans, exactly. So, yeah. you know, it's, it's totally wrong for somebody in my position to have to tell, you know, an amazing young artist, like, sorry, I don't think you have it yet. Because artistically, they certainly have it, but on paper, they might not. Yeah. The, the most pleasant spin I can put on it is that I tell the artist to consider the money that they're either paying out of pocket or incurring the debt for as an investment on the ability to earn by opening this market up. But we're talking a lot of times about 19-year-old artists, you know, who are fresh out of high school, secondary school, or whatever, and they're paying, they're putting food on the table by DJing, by, you know, remixing, releasing, whatever it is, right? So should they be expected to consider an investment over the next three years of touring and fronting that money now? At 19 years old or whatever, exactly. yeah. yeah. I shouldn't well as a 19-year-old <laughs> think about investment. You know? Totally. Hey, are there artists that you want to book that belong on the basement calendar that you can't because of this? Uh, yes, there are some artists that we refuse to New York, but I cannot because we don't have artists. So. Yeah, so many messages like, why didn't you bring this artist, bring this guy, bring that? And then people don't really understand that it's not that easy. I wish it was that easy, but people don't know that there's this very long and difficult procedure which does that artists, agents, and promoters have to go through together in order to get the visa to be able to bring that person here. And then that's why we see like the same um, artists on the lineup. It feels like it's the same lineup in the place, in the different cities, because those are the people who have who already got their artist visas, so they are able to travel here. Uh, but the rest who don't have artist visas yet, just because they're like, um, they, they don't have enough funds to use visas, or they're not able to provide enough documentations, they're just missing out. In addition to just the, the, the pain of like the calendar and trying to present the, the best program that you can and not being able to do because of it, is there also like a um, anxiety or an emotional cost when we do choose to like go down the path and try to help somebody and make a plan in the future and then go through this process? Is it predictable and fun? Or are we on text threads being like, what the fuck is going on? It is very stressful when you see potential that somebody is really good and they deserve to be here and to play and then to get introduced to this local scene and just like you cannot do anything about it because people don't really think that they're not good enough, they're not big enough yet mm. to get the visa, so I just have to say no to them. I would say that it is definitely an emotional relationship back and forth between, you know, myself, promoter, artist, and agent. You know, we've gone how many hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of messages and calls and back and forth. You know, it's not, not a great use of your time, frankly. No, there is a lot of blood, sweat, and tears that goes into it. And one of the points that you mentioned earlier, David, is that there isn't any accountability or reciprocity on the side of the USCIS. Mm -hmm. There have been multiple cases that I've had with artists, and I'm sure you can speak to even more of them, of what are known as PIMS errors which is when 
the consulate or the USCIS make a mistake on their end, we misplaced a document that wasn't available at the local consulate for the interview, you're not getting your visa in time, you missed the whole tour, and you don't get any money back, you don't get any insurance against this, you don't even get a, an apology for it. They're like, fuck you. No, exactly. It's we couldn't find it in, in our system. Give us a couple of days to search through our, our records, and, and then we'll issue the visa once we find it. Yep. And you know, when you're doing this last minute, that's a total disaster. Total, total disaster. Yeah, it is, especially after not only the immigration attorney, the promoters, the venues, the agents, the clubs, the fans, everyone have been anxiously awaiting these artists and wringing their hands on the industry side, wondering, worrying if these are going to come through, all for the USCIS to just put their hands up. And so the interview thing, I think we glossed that, and I'm consistently still interested in that part. So the two ways are I can surrender my passport for a time mm -hmm. and get my stamp put in it and it gets sent back to me, or I can go for an interview, or... Yeah, this, so this is actually one thing that the government has done in the last two years as a response to COVID um, that has been positive. You know, it's really, really rare that I will say anything positive about changes in the last few years, but you used to have to go to the embassy. Once your petition was approved, you book an interview, you know, you go on the calendar, Maybe you have to request an expedited interview because there's nothing available before your tour. So you have to write in, I'm, you know, an American business knockdown center is relying on me because they sold 3,000 tickets for this event. And if I don't show up, everybody's going to be shit out of luck and pissed off. You go to do their interview. And the interview is very basic, you know, from the artists that I speak to. And I've never done one of these interviews myself. So it's kind of funny that I, you know, I advise on these all day, but I don't know exactly how it works. You know, you, go to the embassy, you spend an hour and a half waiting around, and it's kind of like going to the DMV, you wait for your number to be called, you go up to the window, and if you don't have a criminal record, the, the interviews are usually less than two minutes. So what are you doing in the US? What's your occupation? How much money are you gonna make? When do you fly out? They say, great, okay, your passport will be back to you in a couple of days. So that's how it always used to work. During the pandemic, it became a total, total disaster because all the consular staff at every U.S. embassy in the world drained out. Everybody went back home, visas stopped getting issued. So one positive thing that they have done in the last year or so is allow people from many different countries, not everywhere in the world, but many different countries, or if you've previously been to the U.S., then what you can do is once you have the approval letter, you can mail your passport to your local embassy and they will mail it back to you with the visa in a couple of weeks, you know, maybe a week, maybe two weeks, maybe three weeks. So they don't have a guaranteed time frame. It usually happens fairly quickly, but, you know, it is for artists who do have two passports, that has been, you know, a real lifesaver because they can continue touring, or artists who have, based in Europe, who have IDs that allow them to Because otherwise, if you around. surrender your passport, you've surrendered your passport. You're stuck. Even in the, within the EU, you can't cross the border to work, if I understand. Is that right? You, can't, you, can, cro you can cross the, board, the, you know, the internal borders, but the issue that I see most often is um, born out of Brexit. Mm -hmm. So it's British artists trying to play in Europe or European artists trying to play in the UK where they need their passport to cross that border now. Even if they can gig you know, around Germany, Switzerland, France, whatever, there's often, on a tour like that, there's a UK stop, and that's where they get screwed. But still, you know, it, it's good that they have recognized, and you know, we never would have seen this during Trump administration, but it's good that they do see 
some sort of slight way that they can modernize things and make it, even if it's not practically easier 100% of the time, at least gives another option to artists who have the flexibility to do that. And so then just a couple words on the risk. So let's say we're pro-USCIS, and let's say they do an application and they fuck up and they approve it when they shouldn't have. What's the bad thing that's going to happen? So that's a good question. That's a, that is a rare case where they will approve something and then you know, retroactively say we shouldn't have approved this. And it usually happens at that interview. At the interview, they will pull up the petition, they'll pull up the file on their computer. And if they decide there's been a mistake in approving the petition, they will do, and this is really an insane process, they do what's called recommending the file for revocation. And I, I don't think this has happened to either of you. It is like the worst case scenario. They send the file back into it. They you know, give the person their passport back. And they say, we, we have to look into this. We have to do an internal review. Usually that internal review takes 18 months or so, which eats into that three-year work visa. The dates of the three-year visa are fixed. So now all of a sudden you've lost your first, by the time they maybe decide, okay, yeah, they, they should have approved. Yes, the approval was okay in the first place. Now you've lost half of your work visa that you applied for for no real reason. That is definitely, that's a yep. risk, and that's something that you can see in But then also, if they artists. do approve, let's say when they shouldn't have. So what are they protecting us against? And so if they screw up, what's the result? The result is an overstay. The result is somebody who did file a false application and used that to get into the United States and then stayed overstay? Yeah. Or, or what's the bad thing that happens if this agency gets it wrong? Yeah, I mean, that that's the risk, is that, or rather, that's like the big secret is that there is no really bad thing. The risk is maybe that the artist is not intending to work in the U.S. You know, as as an artist, as a musician. That's what the government is trying to protect against: is people working in the country illegally, or doing things that they shouldn't be doing, overstaying, you know, unauthorized immigration. But if they approve a work visa for an artist who maybe shouldn't have been approved, and that artist comes in, plays a bunch of shows, and then goes back home. Everybody wins, you know, the government still has their money, promoters win, and it, there's no downside to that. I think that's the amazing thing to me is when I try to think of the boogeyman that they're standing there stoically protecting us from, I can't really think of one. Like, it's, it seems like a, uh, a merry-go-round without, or just a merry-go-round, I guess. <laughs> yeah, and in, you know, I've been, between my previous, the previous law firm that I worked at and Fanfare Now, which I've been doing for you know, roughly a year, I've, I've been the attorney of record on something like, I've done visas for almost 10,000 individuals in total, you know, some big bands and a couple of orchestras, which really like push that up. But I think in all of those almost 10,000 individuals, I've had two people who have illegally overstayed their visas. So it's really, it's the, it's, if they're a legitimate yeah. artists, you know, they don't want, they don't want to play it. They, they want to go back and, do the big shows back home where they're making more money and they're making more than, you know, maybe they want to tour in the U.S. and build up their profile, but they, uh, they're they touring artists and musicians. They want the flexibility to, to tour. That's yep. their livelihood. So, Taya, are there ideas that you have about what we could do about this problem? Because we have to somehow like, reach with the to shorten the list of the documents we have to submit. Probably the most annoying part is that the artists have to show them that they will be touring the next three years, which are really insane for me. And then we, as the promoters, are forced 
to actually confirm those gigs and give them contracts for the next three years, and we are, of course, to commit to a three-year relationship. So that would really help that to be somehow managed to get the help simplified and sent to the participants from us. Joe, are there ideas that you have about how we could, what we could do to, to help the problem, fix the problem? What we could do as an industry? Uh, as individuals or an industry, any, any, any of the above. I mean, as we spoke about before, I think one thing that the electronic music community has far and above the community surrounding other kinds of music, as Taya's resume shows as well from the work in, in the political side of things, is that we are good at DIY collective action. We are good at coming together and rallying around a specific point and purpose for support of the members within that community. I think part of the reason I was very excited to speak on this panel, thanks for the opportunity by the way, was because there are actionable steps from here that we can do and that starts with educating about this, which is what this is, right? Even the artists who are looking to tour this country don't understand, that they're scared of the process but don't know even all of what goes into the process, right? So I think by demystifying it, that's the first step, not only to artists to kind of take some of the fear out of the process, right, but also to the community as a whole, so that the fans who are attending these shows knows what goes into it. As, as Taya said, all these fans asking, why is this artist not coming? Why can't we bring this person? I think it's important as a first step that everyone is aware of the barriers that have to be surmounted in order to bring these wonderful artists over, right? Once that's clear to everyone, it'll be clear just how unjust and unfair this process is, right? And as much as this feels like a representative democracy in name only, it doesn't hurt to contact your representatives on a local, state, federal level, right? The window for submitting notes of record in this particular instance of trying to raise the application cost by 261%, yeah. if my numbers are right, those are closed already because obviously they don't really like to tell people too much about them or advertise that the window to submit them is open. They close it really quickly. Right, which obviously proves the kind of nefarious purposes for which they're trying to raise these visa costs anyway. Yeah, right? what, what Joe is speaking about is um, a few months ago the government put in a proposal. Um, because it's a government body and they want to change their regulations, they're required to solicit public comment. Uh, and their proposal was to raise that $460 fee, government application fee, for an O or a P visa application to about $1,800. 460 to 1800 dollars massive 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 increase as part of that you know we at fanfare advocated along with many 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 other arts organizations advocated to submit public comment into the government record um, about why this is a bad idea you know what can we do about this and those comments can be submitted by any american business or american citizen I know a lot of non-US based companies ended up turning on their VPNs to, <laughs> to comment anyway. But they received something like 6,000 comments mm. and 6,000, you know, I clicked through a bunch of these and they range from like, I'm a promoter at a tiny bar and I have, I, I, I want to book international artists and I don't have the resources, please don't make it harder. So long, 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 detailed, detailed policy documents and discussions of what they should and shouldn't do. So anytime you hear rumblings on, you know, when you see your favorite promoters or talent agencies and whatnot post on social media or in the music press about these visa fee increases and whatnot, 
educate yourself, and you might be able to make a difference on these on these public comments. It sounds, it might sound like a, a fool's errand, but there is one example that a couple of years ago, the fee for the embassy part of the process, which has been $190 for the last, I think, 15 years, they proposed to raise that $190 fee to about $700. They solicited public comment. About 700 people filed public comment. It took a year or so to review all the comments. And then in the end, the government raised the $190 fee to $205. So in that instance, I am sure that they wouldn't have, you know, they wouldn't have only raised it 15 bucks if there hadn't been this outpouring of support and comments and advocacy and regular people writing in. So it is possible they are required to consider, you know, it's a bit of a black box what they actually do and how they actually sort through the comments, but they're required to consider them. It's in those regulations. It is how a big government agency like USCIS makes their decisions. They have to be at least partially accountable for policy changes. Mm. And so are there other things that you think that we could do? I mean, are there sort of like the, the USCIS rules of how they're implementing the statute and their statute? Is there maybe one thing that you would change about the statute and one thing that you would argue that we should change about the administration of that statute? Yeah, man, there, there are many. <laughs> there are many. Updating the statute is much harder than updating the, the rules and the policy, right? The statute was enacted by Congress back in the 90s. That is really hard to change. And that is where it says things like compact disks and VHS and all that stuff that I mentioned earlier. Interpreting the regulations, that is easier to change. You know, there are other visa programs that where it would be relatively simple to open up uh, there's something called the P2 visa, which is not very well known um, outside of Canada, where it's an exchange program between the Canadian Musicians Union and the American Musicians Union. It results in pretty cheap one-year visas for emerging Canadian artists. All they have to do is join the Musicians Union, file the thing. They don't get stuck with the, the legal fee or the, the visa sponsor fee. Um, that could be a program that could be easily opened up to other musicians' unions in other countries around the world that would make it, you know, you still want the O visa as the gold standard to have long-term work, but even just having this one crucial stepping stone to be able to get into the U.S. market, and then on your next go-around, seem more legitimate to the U.S. government because you've already toured, I just you know? that word in this context. It's so right. weird, but yeah, yeah. yeah, more legitimate. I got it. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you brought up the Canadian instance. David, because if we're looking for models on how we can improve the visa process over here, take a page out of Canada's book. Up until a couple of years ago, it was minimum was $150 for a visa application for an artist from a Schengen zone country to go and perform in the country. Now, a great many nationalities are able to perform as DJs, as any kind of musical entertainers in Canada with an ETA, which costs the same as a fast food meal and takes a couple of minutes to process online. Most of my artists will do it when the plane lands in Canada on their mobile phones, pay $7, and just show the receipt in their email to the CBP uh, when they get over the border, right? Didn't oh. take them six months and $3,000. Exactly. Yeah. It wasn't prohibitive like that. And as far as I know, Canada has not experienced uh, an insurgence of uh, would-be artists who are now uh, bartending in, uh, you know, Moose Jaw or whatever <laughs> and living it up on the Canadian welfare system, right? Yeah. So in just a minute, I'm going to take, uh, open up for some questions. Um, but I also just want to say that, so 
from my perspective, when I started looking into this in terms of the advocacy and who's working in advocacy on this issue in our industry, I started, I started by reaching out to the National Independent Venues Association, which was just established over COVID. And I was disappointed to find that there was representatives sort of liaising with uh, Thomas Dot, who had set up a policy guideline with Carnegie Hall and some of the larger nonprofits who certainly have a legitimate beef on this issue, but maybe not the same beef that we might have. Uh, and that there was a process whereby they were advocating with the USCIS for rules changes that were appropriate to uh, nonprofits of that size. But I couldn't really find anybody who was organizing on these like sort of little micro issues, like the, the P2 being perhaps a more appropriate category for our artists, et cetera. And so hopefully that's something that we can sort of come together and start to think about in the next year, is that there, I think that there does need to be an organization nationally that can help advocate for this perspective because $3,000 against a Carnegie Hall performance or $3,000 against uh, an opening DJ downstairs are wildly different scales and it's wildly inappropriate for the work that we're doing. And so I look forward to trying to think with everybody about how we can organize around that issue from, for, for our industry and for the talent and audiences that we serve. Well said. I want to try something which is going to take some time. So this complex visa process does not affect only traveling artists. It will affect the scene because um, we have less cultural exchange. And then the more international artists you bring here, you have more cultural exchange. For instance, when internationals come here, they get introduced to the US local DJs. And they invite these people to their cities, introduce them to their promoters, maybe they put this track together. So in the end, we get this like cultural exchange, exchanging the education they have between each other and they help each other grow. So it's really hurts the local scene, it doesn't hurt only the international artists. I don't think so. Right. How many, you know, collaborations do you see between US and international artists that come to fruition, whether it's here or there. Do you see, particularly in the electronic music world, there's so much collaboration, and you can, that's, it's, it's such a great opportunity that ends up being lost, particularly for the young artists. Well, it, it also benefits this country and the culture and the societies that we're trying to build over here as well. I mean, ignorance thrives in homogeneity, right? So not only is this a benefit to the community, to the artists themselves, but it's also a benefit to us understanding each other better mm -hmm through the exchange of, of seeing how we live, right? Seeing people from different cultures coming over here, relating to them, right? Not to mention, as we were discussing earlier, this country, probably more so than any other country in the world, has benefited from soft power overseas, globally, right? And, and this is shutting the door on the birthright of that soft power, right? So there, there are a great many reasons why the U.S. government, and they, by extension the USCIS, should advocate for this as well, should really make the changes to their own benefit, to the benefit of the artists, to the benefit of the communities, to the benefit of society as a whole. Perhaps another example of our sort of hypocrisy of openness and, and this sort of thing, mm -hmm. when in fact there's a, a fear-based thing that means that we're not open and that even though we are in New York City, we don't have access to all of the best the world has to offer, instead only the financially well-off of what the world has to offer. Exactly. I'm going to look for questions. Do one in the back. Hi. Um, so I'm kind of curious as a member of the community, I guess, 
and what is it that we can do to be more active on these types of issues? You had mentioned that on the last petition there was only maybe 6,000 people that wrote in. How, as just a fan, can I know if these things are happening? How can I contribute? Because I would have gladly written in as well. I think, I mean, I think our, we need to do a better job of, of communicating these kinds of things. I mean, I think it's, it's twofold perhaps, but we need a body that's advocating on behalf that we can all pay attention to, but then also as a venue, we need to spend some of our time pointing at these issues that are affecting our ability to bring you uh, the most vibrant calendar that we can. Um, so I think it's twofold, and I think we start hopefully by having conversations like this uh, tonight, but then also turn it into something more than that in the future as well. Since, as you mentioned, Tyler, this was not Carnegie Hall, and we don't have those kind of resources, I think it's clear in our community that we have to look out for ourselves because no one else is going to be doing anything for us, right? I think if we start with the step of, of us all in the industry being more open about the hurdles that these artists are facing in order to bring them over here, because there's obviously the interest, as Taya said earlier, I'd like to see um, uh, maybe a, a grant program that's built through grassroots donations, fundraising, right, that can be maybe guided, administered by a voted board of people that, that write those grants and disperse that money to bring over artists. So now we're offsetting those costs, right, and it's the, the, the community themselves who are deciding where that money is going and deciding the, the buzzword for this. Legitimacy? Yeah, we, we, we decide the legitimacy of the artist rather than the USCIS, at least in terms of the cost, right? Totally. Any other questions? The point of this conversation is regarding like um, legitimate travel. I was curious if you could elaborate on the penalty for artists who maybe make the decision to travel illegitimately. <laughs> and they decide they're going to come over and play a gig and pretend they're a tourist under under an alias, etc., so that people can understand exactly why it is so important to have the visa. Yeah, that's important to know about. The best case scenario is that the the individual is turned around on the, at the border. Uh, there, it's called being allowed to withdraw your application for admission, which is a very nice way of saying get out on the next plane. That's the best case scenario, you know. And then you have a red flag against you for the rest of your life. If you're from a country that does not require a physical visa to travel to the U.S., that privilege becomes revoked, so you need to apply for a tourist visa at the, your local embassy where they will ask you, you know, what were you doing, what happened, and from there it gets worse and worse and worse. You know, I, I've had um, a number of situations where people come to me and they say, I did, you know, a massive tour in the U.S. without a visa last year. Like, what? And, you know, I, I just figured I could get away with it. And honestly, this sort of thing happens much more in the um, electronic music community than any of the other genres that I work in. Because, you know, you're not traveling with giant bands full of gear and guitars and whatnot. Um, so it happens a lot. And it's a problem that I have to advise on quite often. Worst case scenarios are you can be, you can be given a, a, either a three-year ban from entering the U.S. for any reason, you can be given up to a 10-year ban. Um, and then from there, you know, this is like kind of the parade of horribles that gets worse and worse and worse. But if you are caught, if you end up getting caught in a lie, that is what the government considers sort of the worst case thing that you can do. Because it's fraud and misrepresentation to a government official. I worked with a, a German band once that were given denials. After they lied at the border, you know, the officer said, did you tour here last year? It looks like I see these tour dates on your website. 
uh, and I don't see any previous work visa history. And they said, no, 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 we weren't, that wasn't us. They got caught in this lie and they were given, the next time they went to apply for a work visa, they were given a denial that said, you may reapply for a US visa on your 90th birthday. <laughs> so that is, that's the worst case scenario that I have ever seen. So it can get, and that's, you know, lying. There's all sorts of like other issues, but that's like the horror story of horror stories. Most of the time, um, thankfully, artists who are, who have done things under the radar, they end up do having success um, later on in their careers when they apply for a work visa. Ends up not really usually being a huge issue um, because if the artist is at the level where they have agency representation or label backing or, you know, serious promoters that are telling them they have to get the visa, their career is usually at a level where it's, it becomes riskier and riskier and riskier to not be in the U.S. market. So artists like that, you know, they can go back and apply for a visa and it's usually okay. They usually say like, hey, I was young. I didn't know that I needed a work visa because I wasn't making any money, something like that. But yeah, it can, it can, it's the whole spectrum from not much of a big deal to um, have fun on your 90th birthday trip. Okay, cool. Thank you guys very, very much for coming out. Thank you to RA. Um, and thank you also to Emily, who's been helping us manage the whole stuff. Um, and thank you guys for having us Thanks for listening to this RA Exchange with Tyler Myers, Taya Abashidza, David Amar, and Joe Sigmund live from Wire Festival. Many thanks to the team at Knockdown Center and Wire for helping facilitate this conversation. The track playing in the outro of this episode is Batteries Not Included by Marcel Detman, who played at Wire Festival this past year. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe to the RA Exchange and listen to our full archive of conversations on ra.co or on SoundCloud at ra-exchange. Until next time, Take care.